0: I think what I'm excited about is that, like, at least in my view, I hope that we didn't make a gimmick out of this heritage. I think like we tried to treat it with the utmost realism and honesty, and that's why a lot of like hard choices were made in like who to include and who not to include because we have to tell a like interesting story at a point too.
1: This is Jerry Frank. He's an Academy Award-nominated filmmaker, originally from Luxembourg but now living in America. He was in Belgium last month for the premiere of his latest film, a documentary about Lambic called Bottle Conditioned.
0: I'm, I'm happy with it. Like, I, don't, I, I didn't sit in the movie theater today and cringe. That's the biggest problem. When you make a movie and you have an audience sitting there with you and there's like moments where you're like, oh, because you know what that means? It means that you, you took a shortcut somewhere and now you're like seeing it and you're like, fuck, I didn't stick to my guns and make this real. And I, I felt good about it. I mean, I've seen this movie so many times and I still get choked up about the Amar thing. Like seriously, I'm not saying it to be dramatic, but like it, yeah, it's really, uh, yeah, it's, and what I said at the end is like, for me personally, it's sad that I was never able to show him the movie to. I'm, I'm not sure Amar really like thought about it even once, you know? It's not like he was like, I wonder what that movie is doing. Yeah. But personally, like, all the other producers have seen it. But yeah, Armand is the only one that...
1: Everything comes back to Armand. He often referred to Michel and myself as the sons he never had. Uh, but for us as well, he's a second father. Werner van Obergem, the managing director of Drie Fontaine. The result of his long persistence in believing in in the tradition, in believing in the natural way of of making uh, lambic, of blending How he actually against all economical sense he continued to pursue his dreams and his passion because no one was interested in traditional lambic beers 20, 30, 40
2: years ago. I don't live in a museum. I refuse. I don't, I, I don't have any collections, huh? nothing. I don't have maybe a few things which remember my, my, my father. OK, that's all. Don't have that, don't have, uh, even in bottles of beer. Huh? No, today, that's important for me. And it's not emotional, not at all. I'm emotional when I see what the young guys are doing here. I can be proud to transmit my knowledge to the next generation. My two partners in the business, they're fantastic. And I try to teach them and support them, thinking for the future.
1: That's a clip from the movie with Armand de Belder, the Lambic brewer and blender of Drie Fontaine, who passed away last year. We've got more clips like that, and we've got a full catch up with bottle condition director Jerry Frank.
0: I am really happy and proud that um, such a prestigious festival in Belgium as Docville chose to program a movie. Because honestly, I always had hoped they would take it, uh, because they're very well, that festival in the film industry and in the doc world is very well respected. Uh, If you win a jury award there, it also like gives you the criteria to be qualified to submit to the Academy Awards Um, So it's accredited by you know that institution as well and Frank the programmer I think programs a lot of good films so to be among like All these other films and show it in Belgium was like a really like nice full circle And I feel like I feel very like light right now Yeah, I, I feel like this was this was this was a valid and a great conclusion to the whole journey. So it's, yeah.
1: So in this podcast, we'll be talking to Jerry Frank about the film, about living in the Lambic world for four years, about the creative challenges he faced and the directorial choices that he made. I'm Brendan Kearney, and you're listening to the Belgian Smack Podcast. Part 1 Oscar Nominated
3: Of, of bottle condition, but actually, you've probably got more of a track record as a producer. Mm-hmm. So, how, how did you how did you navigate, or how did you feel about stepping into kind of a very different role, like in your first sort of directorial adventure?
0: Uh, it was scary, and I probably did a lot of the first-time filmmaker mistakes and things that you have to go through as a learning learning curve, um, you know, especially like the overconfidence thing, (laughs) you know, that's a first time filmmaker thing. It's like you, 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 I, for some reason, I all of a sudden didn't look at it from a producer perspective anymore. I looked at it from like, oh, I, I, I just need to make this movie at any cost. And so, you know, that, that comes with a lot of uh, neglecting other things in your life and just going out and doing it. But yeah, I do come from a producer background. And before that, I was also a camera operator for 10 years. Um, I, was, I was a steady cam operator on big movies and stuff like that. And it was just not creatively fulfilling for me. So I, I went into producing with my um, partner, life partner and business partner, Courtney. She's a director and I would produce her projects. And then this was kind of like a role reversal. She produced this and I directed it.
3: Yeah, so you I mean you have good experience working with with Courtney? The roles, yeah, flip, so yeah. That's new, uh, but you do have other experience, like like you say, you worked behind the camera. I think having a technical background is also important for a director. Mm-hmm. You've, but you, you've also like had s- some success, let's say. So working with very high profile people, I think you like have been. You, you were shooting music videos with Drake inside like strip clubs in in Houston, <laughs> and you. You did university
0: research. <laughs> with, a, with a lot of big
3: stars uh, on James Franco movies.
0: Yeah. what's
3: is there, a, is there a different, do you have to bring something different when you're in a more high profile set than if you're working on, a, on an independent film about spontaneously fermented beer?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a different kind of nervousness. Um, it's a different kind of stress. There's definitely like, when you work on a certain level of production where there's a lot of money invested, a lot of like high profile actors that, you know, you've seen in movies only until that point, and you kind of are now like the leading cameraman in that movie, and you like have to like show up and perform. There's that, there's that like pressure of like, you know, screwing up and uh, you don't want to screw up and look foolish, you know, you don't want to be embarrassed. It's that, it's that thing. And uh, yeah. And then when you make a documentary about spontaneous beers, I I, I think for me, the biggest like nervousness and stress in the beginning was like getting, getting in with these people, with these, uh, with these producers that I was following because and maybe this is not the best thing, but I also came a bit at it from a fan point just slightly because, uh, you know, I was a fan of their beers before I, before I started making the movie. So um, I was maybe a bit like, you know, like you get nervous in the beginning. You're like, oh, are they really going to be the way I imagined them to be? Like, are they going to act? differently towards me because of X, Y, and Z. And, uh, you know, and you kind of have to forget that and not be afraid yeah, you have that to get rid know. of your
3: own reverence as yeah. well as, you know, perceptions that you have or they have.
0: Yeah. Because you don't want to, you don't want that to, and, and I, I have to admit it was a bit of like, um, struggle in the beginning for me, like to, to put myself aside and just really like let the movie become what it should become because, um, yeah, because of my, extensive knowledge about the beer already it was probably not the most beneficial thing to have it's sometimes better to go into something not knowing anything about it
3: well one thing that you had going in was um uh you you produced a movie with courtney called chow which was sort of uh, about the the history of agent Agent orange and sort of i I guess also like a, a story about um one person's struggle to be the person they want to be and to achieve the, the, the creative ambitions that they want to fulfill um, mm-hmm. against a background which offers a lot of political sort of uh, discussion as well and that yeah. movie was Oscar nominated mm-hmm. so I think for the Lambic Project and for other films that's something that you can come come to people with you know sort of uh, academy Oscar nominated producer um, can you t- can you put me in the room when you find find out that you're, you're going to be nominated or that you're nominated or that you're actually going to the award ceremony?
0: Yeah. Uh, so it, it's, it's a whole process. It starts with first, you have to qualify the film to be eligible, to be considered, that's a whole process. And then you get shortlisted, which means like, then it gets narrowed down to like 10 people. And that's, that doesn't, that gets a little bit of press, but it's not something like somebody who's not in the film industry would know. Um, and then from those 10 the members of the documentary branch of the academy uh of the academy awards vote on out of those 10 which five are going to get nominated so it's like a trickle down process so you start at like a big pool of a lot of submissions get down to 10 and then to five they get nominated and yeah so like when we i remember where we were we were in our old apartment in la and uh it's at 5 a.m. when they do the 5 a.m. Pacific time, when they do the announcements and it's like a live stream. So we watched it on our on our laptop because we didn't have a TV or like a <laughs> TV subscription. So we watched it on our laptop. And uh, yeah, it's like you, you sit there and like, they're like, okay, now this category, best documentary short, and then they do it alphabetically. So with our movies being, starting with a C, we were like, oh, it's gonna be like one of the first to be named, or if we don't, then we're not nominated and it was the second one and uh yeah it was like it's like you you like jump up in the air you like it's like this relief of like all these years of work and it's like it's it's this surreal moment and then and then the floodgates open because the roller coaster ride of like doing a campaign of the academy awards is is pretty insane it's like you get pulled in so many directions so many people want to talk to you. So many events you have to go to pre, pre to the Oscars. They're all yeah. like you know organized. Um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a bit much to be honest. It's like I can only imagine. I mean, and that's 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 a documentary short. That's not even like that's low on the totem pole. That's not even like best yeah, actor. Best. Film. I mean yeah yeah yeah. I mean those those guys must go through like, pff, yeah, but they're also mostly celebrities, so I don't feel bad for them. But
3: <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, you know, it, you, it must have been, you know, an incredibly proud moment, you know, I, like you say, after oh, such a yeah. lo- long work and just to have that feeling that, you know, you know, the, the call with your mom and dad back in, back in Luxembourg or just the, the moment that you can share with Courtney after, you know, starting that from scratch, which effectively was a, a college project of hers that you then ran with, with her. Um, yeah. It must, it must have been. Eight amazing. years in the
0: making. Yeah, eight years in the making. And uh, it was it was an incredible thing. And you know, what's funny is like, because that movie, is, it's one of those things, like a, we submitted it to film festivals, but we got a lot of rejections. Like barely anybody accepted us, especially all the big festivals rejected it. And then it gets nominated for an Academy Award. And then all of a sudden, like everybody like comes back and is like, oh yeah, actually that movie was great. Now I'm interested in it. Yeah, can you we know, get that it's one? The in? Same, yeah. Yeah, it's the same everywhere and it's like it's it's sad that sometimes you have to have other people validate your work for it to be more globally accepted. But, but it's not that the same the with any
3: living. creative endeavor. You know, whether it's whether it's a, yeah. whether it's a it's, song from a niche band or you know, yeah. a, a book that nobody's heard of but yet then gets made into a film. You know, it's just it's just that sort of external validation is part of the kind of the unfair nature of creative endeavors, right?
0: Yeah, and that's the, that's the hard part because like you do everything yourself, you do everything like in your room, closed off like all the time. Like, you know, it's a very solitude type of experience creating movies, and uh, you know, and obviously, *Bottle Condition* was one of those as well.
3: So you're coming, you're coming with a, a Academy nomination. You're coming with um, a lot of experience in in commercial. Uh, filmmaking and advertisements and shorts. You come um, you know, with, with this experience of making a documentary and I would imagine that people are probably in the film industry are probably like, okay, what's next? And then you turn around and you say actually Lambic and everyone else is like, <laughs> what? what? So yeah. w- w- it, w- did you feel a pressure in choosing your, your next, the subject of your next film and what was the reaction when you told people, look, I, I want to make a film about this really niche sour beer that is really difficult to produce that comes from one particular part of Belgium.
0: Yeah, and it was—I uh, mean, the, the the biggest thing was like we didn't have that next project. That was our biggest uh, mistake, if you want to say it's a—we didn't have our next project ready to go after the Oscars, and that was. A, a big issue because it is true like that thing people are like what's next what's next that's 100 percent true and we didn't have that and we were courtney was writing scripts and but they were not ready yet and i was trying to find a new subject for a documentary and it took me like two years after the oscars to really like figure out that it was going to be about lambic I I think like a year later or so in 20, so we got nominated in 2016. And then in 2017, I started conceiving the idea of like, I want to make a beer doc because I was getting frustrated with like the content that was out there. It was too fan-based for me. It was not like in depth enough. And I like, you know, if you've seen my previous work, I like, uh, you know, the human stories more than the technical stuff. And um, yeah, it was like, uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> I, I guess I just didn't ask permission. I just did it. Um, and, uh, I, I was hoping that like, you know, I was hoping that like through crowdfunding, there was going to be like some financial support. And then eventually we found investors that were coming on board as well. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess it is a big, uh, spin from like, <laughs> you know, like a political, well, not political, but like, a a movie about uh, overcoming the adversity of a disability, for example, yeah. to going into like something as light as beer, you know?
3: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that's why, that's why I was asking about oh, the pressure, because I think there probably were eyes on you. I mean, there are huge differences in, you know, the themes explored and, but I, I still think there's some part of, of your maybe style as a producer or director that, that comes through in both films. I mean. There's a, like there's, yeah. a, there's a focus on humans, there's a focus on a person or people who are struggling to do something that they love despite the challenges that are, are in their way. Um, there's a lot of tight um, sort of uh, close up shots where, where you're trying to focus on the raw emotion of, of the person, which I think is, is, is you know, there mm-hmm. in, in both films. I mean, I guess the story changed probably quite a lot from your initial idea to the final film, because that's the nature of documentary. Um, Yeah. What was your, what was your original idea and how how did that then evolve into what it is now?
0: The original idea was very basic. It was, uh, let me follow a couple of Lambic producers over the course of a year uh, document all the seasons of production, you know, different, different types of production that goes on during the years and the seasons and kind of like make like a year in Lambic type of movie. And then you quickly realize you're faced with the thing of like, well, who's going to watch that? (laughs) You know, who's going to watch that other than me and and a, a few hardcore Lambic fans, maybe. Uh, because you you know you have to realize also like you're putting a lot of money time and effort into it like it needs to be you have some commercial you know appeal it needs to have some things that can connect beyond just the beer and then you start shaping like okay what are the stories and um, and and then you like hopefully hopefully find it and I and I did but it it was also like not easy it was definitely like it would have been easier to do the first idea of just documenting it.
3: Was there any, um, point in the process where you thought, shit, this, this isn't going
0: to work? Uh, maybe, maybe more Courtney. So in the beginning than me, um, just quite frankly, because like she was not in a lot of times, like when you start and you have this idea, it's hard to like, get it out on paper. And I tried to write out an out- outline as best as I could multiple times in the early stages. Cause I also wanted to communicate it with my uh, director of photography, Mario, you know what I was seeing, what I how I was imagining it. And yeah, at that stage, there was not really a story yet. It was all more conceptual and it was again, more about like the different seasons and, and, and all that. And so like, I think like Maybe Courtney was a little more skeptical in the beginning because she didn't see it. I also, quite frankly, didn't fully see it. I just felt it. And I just acted on a feeling. And um, it, it, it luckily paid off in the sense that, like, we were able to craft a story out of it. And Courtney, from a writer background, she is very strong in screenplays actually helped me quite a lot with shaping the story, um, in this last year of, uh, of editing because, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely necessary.
3: Yeah. I think, um, you initially took like a two week trip to Belgium to kind of talk to some of the producers of Lambic and I guess get to know people, figure out what access might be like, figure out in your own head, what the, what the, what, how, how it might look in the future. Like who were the people that you did speak to? and What did you learn on that trip?
0: Uh, The most the the biggest thing that I learned is like how the community operates, like the vibe of the community, like how they all interact, think of each other, think of themselves within the community. Um, That's the biggest thing that I got to see that on that trip. And that's where I felt like. Oh, guys,
3: you're talking about sort of the, the 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 political Let's say the political nature of the relationships, and that there are certain values that the different producers hold, and there's yeah. certain friendships that that there are, and maybe certain tensions within the group that you kind of got a feel for for that.
0: Yeah, yeah, because because I I was starting to like get a little more like access than maybe the average uh, drinker who goes over there and just spends some time and. And drinks the beers. So I was having one-on-one conversations with these people and, uh, I was, I could sense between the lines, you know, I could see what there was like in terms of like how they were viewing things, how they were like acting in the community and like, and, and all that. And, and, um, yeah, so, so that kind of like gave me hope that there was a richness there. And that's what motivated me to like go full force and do it because, uh, I, I felt like there was like a uh, just like an, an interesting dynamic in, the, in this community uh, that, that maybe doesn't really exist in, in other beer communities. It's like very unique to Lambic, I think. Um, but yeah, Absol- so that's...
3: And what about, so, I mean, how early was the name on the film, Battle Conditioned?
0: That was That was like right away, like for some reason, I don't know if that was like during my research or like the first time we started filming. Um, actually, no, I think it was during research because, uh, I I had created the Instagram account already and, uh, it was, it just, because, because I felt like bottle conditioning is like the last stage of the fermentation of like the light of, I mean, the, the phase of the, the beer goes through and a very important one, obviously, because without it, you don't get carbonation for the goods. And uh, so I felt like it was like kind of like a nod to it in like a classy way, while also like maybe sounding appealing to somebody who doesn't know. or, you know, when you see the movie, it has the word "bottle, it probably like tells you that it's something about like a beverage, about like a food and, food and drink story, so.
3: Yeah, you have the, the clarity theatrical. of the theme, and then you also have some some sort of niche reference to the to the beer itself. I mean, what I, what I took from the title was um, that the the word conditioned, as in the human condition, and that we all have our different backgrounds and our different um, perceptions, and you know we grow up in different ways, and we have all these different values, and it really. Um, has a massive impact in the finished product, i.e., the person, in the same way that all the decisions that you take in making a lambic, uh, you know, and, and it, it lives this life in the bottle when it's conditioned to become a certain way. And I thought that that was kind of the the, the vibe that you were going for in the title.
0: Yeah, I, that sounds much better than what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I I think that's a good that's a good uh, analogy. See, it's like it's like. It's, Stuff like that, I, I didn't really think about too much. I, I was really looking at it from like this, and it was probably because in the beginning I was not looking to make, I, I mean, I was always looking to make a, a, a good beer doc, a, a deep beer dock. but I was more looking at it from a technical point of view and that's why like I, maybe I was just, yeah. But yeah, that, that, that makes sense. In 1993, I ended up
2: in Brussels
1: the Shelton brothers, another clip from the movie.
2: I wanted to make one of my goals that week to figure out what Lambique was. So I did a tour at Cantillon and I immediately became enraptured with this brewery. I visited again and again and became friends with the whole family. I brought back a whole duffel bag of nothing but Cantillon bottles just to show these guys what I had discovered and um, also had it in my mind to mention as a joke, oh, by the way, they don't have an importer. I couldn't find it in that my local beer shop in Brooklyn, and I, I asked the woman there. She said, well, we can't get it. I said, well, you know, my brother's friends with the brewery. I, there's gotta be a way for us to somehow get it to you so that you can sell it to us. She said, well, no, you can't do it that way. I mean, you basically, to do that, you have to become a beer importer. That's literally what she said to me. Geez, I've got time. Uh, what's involved in being a beer importer? Nobody knew what it was when it came in, except that they heard that there's this famous beer lambique, and there, some, there were some chat boards, or whatever you would call them at the time, where people would discuss lambique, and they would say Cantillon's the best, and all this. You know? And so the word went out. Cantillon is here, and so we actually sold that first container pretty easily. But we, we also get a lot of calls from people saying, what's going on here? I bought a bunch of this beer and That's, it's- hour. That's what I was getting out with. So it became very clear that our job was educating people.
1: Part two, storylines.
3: about directorial choices, but you have um, a, a, a wonderful breadth of, of characters present in, in the movie, which shows like how much work he did in, in, in getting on the ground. Um, so you have your kind of three main narrative threads with Drifontaine, Cantillon and Boca, but you also have, you know, a sort of a, a small cameo from Bone, Frank Bone, you have Jonathan from Etre Gourmet, you have Raph from The Hebron, The Winning. The Shelton brothers are in there. You have uh, Bill Young and and Chris Levy from the States, you know, and and there there are, you know, many other characters in there. And, you know, I know that you guys also shot at Tilka. So there's probably quite a lot of stuff you shot that never saw, you know, the light of day in the film and that maybe, you know, ended up on the cutting room floor because of, you know, having to really, you know, get the story to be as strong as it could and, and sort of make, kill some babies and make some, some directorial choices. Like how, how much more did you shoot than is in the film? Like what, where, where else did you feel might've really just about made the story?
0: Um, I, well, I mean, with every documentary you shoot way more than, than, than what you end up having. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I don't know to what degree, but like there's a lot of footage that didn't make it and a lot of good footage, too, and a lot of footage from people that gave us amazing access and that later on didn't make it because of uh, we had to narrow it down, we, you know, to these storylines because they worked in in the frame that we were building. And uh, yeah, it's like killing your darlings, like you say, Like it's like this uh, this thing of uh, it's it's hard, but you 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 have to be able to do that because otherwise you're gonna get wrapped up and and it's gonna be endless. Like otherwise you, you could make three hours worth of movie, and it's like no, no again, no one's gonna watch that because it's too long, it's too drawn out, too specific. And um, yeah, it's uh, yeah the other main big producer that we filmed with that didn't make it into the movie eventually was, like you mentioned, uh, Tilka, And that, that was a very hard choice. It was not easy uh, because I respect Pierre and I and he gave us really good access and I appreciated that very much. Uh, but it was just at the end of the day, it was a it was a storytelling choice. And it was not me just like saying like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just going to concentrate on these three people and, you know, put him to the side. But it was a big discussion between our editor. I mean, our second editor, myself, Courtney, we also at that time had like an, a, a story consultant on board and it was actually the story consultant who like, was like the, fir- the first one to kind of like say it and say like, maybe we need to lose this fourth story because it doesn't seem to fit in our current reshaping of things. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing, it's nothing personal. And it's nothing that like his story was less valuable. It was just like the way it had, the way we were building the movie, it just ended up being that story that fell away. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, no.
3: But I think, I think that is, you know, is the strength of the film. Maybe and what sets it apart from other beer, uh, beer content. Um, that you can be a little bit maybe more, or perhaps objective is the wrong word, but you know, try to create something of value for people that maybe aren't in the beer world that they have something to relate to. So you know what I see is like you say the kind of the three main stories that are in the movie, um, the three main narrative threads, which we which you kind of jump back and forth between, um, and you know, in each of those you have um, a couple of the core elements of story which you know, our character uh, uh, conflict and, and change or implied change. And, you know, that tension is, you know, is central to having a story that's engaging. If you don't have that, then it's just, you know, it's it's not a story. It's just uh, a bunch of stuff that happens. So um, right. with with Cantillon, you, you you know, obviously, it's it's the, the generational tension. Um, you know, you have this father. Uh, Jean-Pierre and, and and son Jean, who have tremendous respect for each other, but quite different perspectives on life. And I think that generational tension is um, is you know everyone I think in the world can relate that relate to that and, and maybe see that. With Three you have the tension. Th- this is just my perception of having watched the film. You know, you yeah, please yeah, yeah, have sure. Three Fontaine. You have the kind of ambition in in kind of contrast to. The, the maintaining of the heritage, and you can see that those guys are like obsessed with trying to preserve what Adamant created, but yet also trying to make the business financially viable and be the best. You know, they said in the film, be the best lambic brewer they can in the world. And then Bocca is is a is a perhaps a more nuanced uh, story. And w- what I see there, and and uh, you know, I'd be grateful for your uh, your input. But what I see <laughs> there is like an internal. Chaos, which is sort of, and this is this is where I directly relate to the production of the beer. Where in a way he's trying to control his personality, and his personality is is, is uncontrollable. Is uh, and here we're talking about creativity. We're talking about um, dealing with the pressures of running a brewery. We're talking about relationships, and of course, lambic is something that is notoriously uncontrollable. But yet, there's beauty yeah. in that. So, the, the, in in some of the scenes, in particular, I thought that that really struck a struck a note. Um, I guess my question is like, is it is it, is that an accurate perception of of those three story tensions? And what were the considerations in trying to develop those along, those three narrative threads?
0: Yeah, I think I think you really. Uh... You really hit it on the head there because uh, that's, that's really what I was going for and what I wanted to show. And, and it's not me trying to like, you know, come up with that. That's what was given to us. That's what really happened. Those are the things that we filmed and documented. And um, I, I, yeah, I, I think those are all valid assessments and, and they all had like three elements, uh, three themes that were relatable beyond just beer. Because, you know, family business, like you were saying, you know, that's something that a lot of people go through and, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to deal with different generations. And then, you know, like building on a heritage and but also like modernizing, that's also a valid uh, struggle because it's like, you know, especially with Lambic, it's, it's, uh, it's so like, I mean, Lambic now is becoming like this other thing. It's, it's probably, <laughs> I can understand sometimes Jean-Pierre's you know, uh, concerns because it's like uh, in some places it's gone so far beyond what it was.
3: But I do not think that's better generally though as well, like with, you know, probably, yeah, I think the same, the same thing with (coughs) milkshake IPAs as it is with, uh, or, you know, like or or pastry stouts as it is with lambic in terms of like how people drink, Uh, you know, and and like Jean-Pierre in the movie has some great lines about like his thoughts on the way people drink today. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's, it's, it's important to show that because like, you know, we always, especially when I say we, when you're in the beer industry or like in the, in the scene as a fan or whatever consumer, you you really only ever see like how we are, like how we like conduct ourselves. Like we get, we go crazy about all these new beers and stuff, but we never see it from like maybe a perspective of, uh, you know a few generations back were like how is their reaction to this it? it's, it's that whole it's that old age thing of like you know the, the world evolves and doesn't stop and how do you deal with aging how do you deal with uh becoming obsolete almost and 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 i think that's the that's the thing in kanteon for example
3: and then with the with the with the boca with raf's storyline um i think you know, obviously he's a more maybe softly spoken, uh, and maybe in a way more guarded about the things he says, but, you know, still, uh, very, very much believes in what he's doing. Was it, was it more challenging there to, to kind of select the scenes to make the story sing or did you
0: know immediately that that was, you know, exactly what you were going to do there? No, that was, uh, definitely, it was definitely like a harder one to shape because, um, again, you like, you you don't want to tell too many different things that are too far apart. And that's also another reason why the fourth story is not in there anymore. You know, you're dealing with three stories now, which is already a lot. And the three have to, like you said, like they have to have an arc. They have to have beginning, middle, and end. And there's a change and evolution that needs to happen. And it was definitely harder to shape that with with raf's storyline because he's an artist and in the pure sense of uh you know he, he he just goes about it he doesn't he just wants to have fun and he doesn't think too much i think about like uh the you know the the fight the financials or like the 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 how do you say it? Like the running a business aspect, logistics,
3: right? The logistics of yeah. business, yeah. The
0: logistics, exactly, yeah. And so it's like, how do you, how do you build a story out of that? And uh, it, it was really like later that I realized, and also with like the things that Raph went through the last couple of years, where um, he feels like he's burnt out a bit, Uh, where I saw that there was a way to like shape this into like, well, what happens if like you go to full force and you don't pay attention to certain aspects of logistical point of views? Like what, what happens? And yeah, because I've experienced this too, like many times during this movie, the burnout, you go, you go like, you go like every day, every day you like produce, produce, produce. And it's like you never have a day of rest. You, you work at god-awfully hours and and you burn out. You, like, get sick. I, I, I've had many phases in this in this production where I I was feeling sick for a few days, and I had to literally lay down. And I think uh, Raph, the last couple of years, kind of went through something like that. And it's that artist struggle. And that's what I wanted to show.
3: Was there discussion internally in your team about the like the actual story, so you know, you, you know, you really focus on on the the generational thing. on Cantillon with with the uh, Jean Pierre and Jean, was there some other potential storyline that you had to discuss and say no, the the family one is the most important one here, or did a lot of the stories take more work in scene selection uh, uh, and sort of structure to to bleed out that you know you didn't really have any other choices.
0: Yeah, it was pretty evident as soon as with Cantillon. It was I would say out of the three storylines, the easiest one to shape because it almost shaped itself. Like that, that was um, and and it was mainly because of Jean Pierre and uh, and Claude his uh, his wife. Uh, once I once I met them, once I interviewed with them, once I like got close with them and 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 started to really see their point of view. I was like, oh okay, and I think. I think maybe that's where the movie shifted, where it like, where it shifted from like not making this like seasonal production movie anymore about like, oh, all about Lambic. No, that's where it shifted into like the real human stuff that I was after, but that I didn't really know yet what it was going to be. And that was like our second trip of filming in the summer of 2019.
4: I was actually planning to move my whole thing to Piotolant because that's where the Lambic is from and this and that.
1: This is a clip with Raph and Carolina from the Bocca storyline
4: in the film. But afterwards, I'm so happy I'm just here, far away from the other guys in some ways. It's Not that I want to you know, put myself aside from them, but I can, I can never run into them at the bakery or at the butcher or something. And I'm happy with that, far away from that whole Lambic scene. It's also good that you don't face constantly yourself with one of your colleagues, because otherwise you kind of get to be too influenced and, and then everything yeah, tends to, to, to be homogeneous. They would, and they I would think for sure have more influence if I was out there, because they could come over and hang out, this and that, and influence it too much.
0: Um, it was from the get go. I wanted to shoot it on, on the Alexa because it's, uh, it's the most cinematic looking digital camera, like the most film like camera out there. And, um, Mario also happened to own one. So, you know, it was kind of like a easy, easy thing. Okay. That's what we're going to do. And, and he used really old vintage Austrian, I think lenses from like the '80s, maybe. could be wrong but like that also gave it that like vintage look a bit and um, yeah it was uh, it, it was like kind of a natural choice so to say and you know the a7 that cliff used actually that was our backup camera because mario also had one of those so we brought that to belgium always as our backup camera and sometimes we would get certain shots with it uh, that were just on a tripod as we were off shooting other stuff and there was a way to like blend the two to look like it was coming from the same camera they there's like settings you could do on the A7 that were very close to the Alexa and and so it was <laughs> lucky that Cliff had the exact same camera when i when i started to like hire him and uh yeah so it all worked out because it should look seamlessly right you know i i like intimate docs i like you know like raw feeling docs and even when we shot the interviews that were, you know, obviously on tripod and we had a bit of lighting there, always kept it very natural lighting, like a lot of bounced light. Very, we we had a very small package of lights and uh, just mostly like daylight balanced lights that were like, you know, like you didn't even feel like there was going to be a light there. And uh, that was always the feel. And that, that, that was always from the get go. That was the one thing that that never changed. I, I always wanted to, to make it feel uh, intimate and handheld. And uh, at the end, we started doing more tripod because I started to realize like some handheld is maybe too shaky and we need like some more static off, stuff. Yeah, the thing, the thing yeah, I yeah, was about, was, the, about uh, the
3: lights was, you know, that um, you had kind of limited well thought out light, whether it was natural or, or otherwise very much on, on, on the subject you were shooting. And then the background was, was more slightly darker, which I think made it feel more cinematic actually more dramatic. Is, is, is yeah. there was a drama to the scene that you brought by making those choices? And, um, I mean, I don't know yeah. if, if also, uh, Peter Schwartz, who was the colorist on the film had a, a, a contribution mm-hmm. in that or whether, it, you know, it was mostly to do with the way you shot it, but there is a drama, um, there too.
0: Yeah, there's a, it's a collaboration between many departments, but I, I'd say it starts with how it's shot. And it was definitely intentionally shot like that. There was a lot of like, uh, you know, also like um, contrast in terms of like the facial lighting. So like there was a lot of like uh, dark sometimes on like one side and like lit from one from one angle because it, that's really how it feels in, especially at k in these places that are dimmer I wanted to preserve that. I wanted to like have that feel because like when you're just standing there and talking to someone, you can and you pay attention. You actually like realize, oh yeah, it's like pretty dark on one side. It's like always just one source coming from, you know, cuz there's only one window somewhere. It's not a very bright place, so it it felt natural. And then you know we embellished it obviously in uh, in color. Sometimes we had to lighten things up a bit in color because sometimes it came a bit too dark. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's a collaboration between everybody.
3: And then you know, speaking of collaborators, um, how, what were the early discussions with Robbie Tian?
0: So so uh, with our composer Robbie. Um, it was he came on, I I'd say like uh, two months or so before the movie was completely done, like pretty late in the game. Um, we originally had a different, had another composer, uh, somebody we usually work with, uh, but he was unavailable due to scheduling conflicts, and he recommended Robbie, which was which was really great because Robbie did an amazing job, um, and it was uh, it was. It was at first like we really had to like find like the tone of the film because I even like I was so wrapped up in editing until the last second that I didn't really even like have like the perspective of what the score is gonna be. So were you were you so editing something that music? Uh, temp music. So basically music that already exists from other movies or like classical music and which is so limited and so frustrating because you can't change anything. It's like you're dealing with what you're having. And then it's like, then it also influences you because then you're like so married to like certain tunes and you're like, oh, Robbie, can you recreate that? And then you realize when you're recreating it, oh, that's actually not it. That's, that's not, I, I, and, and you get influenced by this temp music. So it's, it's, it's really, I mean, obviously annoying. you're showing him
3: drafts of the film. Like what was the brief on, on, on kind of the, the emotional timbre that you wanted to go for?
0: Um. Yeah. Well, that was, uh, I, I, I'm very subtle as you can probably tell in the movie. Like I, this movie is actually quite, has quite a lot of score in it, which was necessary, which was good. But we started off with like less score. Like, uh, I was like, oh, we don't need score there. And like, oh, tone it down, you know, too, too, too dramatic, too much, you know, like, and then afterwards, like once I was like more like, once we had more of a rhythm, like I felt like okay now I feel like it's justified to go more more dramatic here more like strings here or whatever it it was really like a trial and error a lot of times like it was hard to like really come up with the, the end the end pieces so the final score that goes all the way through the credits that was actually the fastest that it came together the hardest one to nail down out of all the scores was the opening was like, you know, after the opening scene, mm-hmm. uh, the one that gets us going. Because again, I had like all these temp scores and I was like really influenced by them and I couldn't see clearly what I wanted and I couldn't see like beyond them. And, and then Robbie was, you know, he was just trying to do his best and also trying to like please me in the sense of like, I want to do a good job. And so it was very, uh, very hard. But I I think when when he when he nailed it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is it. Like, don't need to change anything. Yeah. I
3: mean, I think with the with the with the heavy strings, you have a lot of warmth and also can can bring some drama. Um, Something you know, the the kind of the staccato the, the kind of the staccato plucking of the strings, I think also also adds a little bit of drama, but it's 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 also a little bit like quirk like there's there's a suggestion that this is this world of lambic is not mainstream and maybe is funny to some people funny strange and it's like Mm -hmm. you know there's a suggestion in that staccato that you know this is not your usual beer and I think that that actually works quite well you know put together with the other strings
0: thanks yeah yeah no i i definitely like there was definitely some some pieces in the score that we went a little bit bit more on the quirkiness and uh and 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 also like just the having more fun you know because i feel like a lot of it in the movie is serious and there are there needs to be some lightness sometimes and uh, it, it worked out well I'm, I'm very happy with the score that's like one of the things that i'm the most proud of how it came together at the end was the score.
3: Yeah. Um, Another very important part of making a documentary is securing archive. And, um, you know, you've got a kind of, (laughs) um, I think a thoughtful use of archive in that you're obviously trying to tell the story of Lambic generally and paint a picture of Lambic and Belgium in a particular historical period, but also you're trying to use archive, which gives some Background to who these people are, you know. So you have
0: yeah.
3: um, a great, a great sort of moment with Arma and his father uh, in the brewery. You have a great moment with Arma and and, and tasting their first lambic they produced together. Um, mm-hmm. Even just photographs of of Raft's grandmother's house, like just completely covered in barrels, and then we see the empty room and all the marks on the floor. Um, was it was it easy once you had a relationship with the with the brewers to try and secure? archive and consent to use it or was the archive sort of search a complete nightmare?
0: Yes, it was a nightmare. <laughs> um, and, you know, you Cliff can also, uh, he, when you ask Cliff, uh, he, he can also tell you a few stories about that, but, um, cause he was, he was helping me a lot, uh, securing some of that stuff while I was not over there. Um, it was, some of it was easy. Actually, the easiest was uh, Cantillon. Jean-Pierre, like, and Jean, like what they gave me, the, 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 the trove of like archival was amazing. And it was like, yeah, here, take everything, take whatever you want. And they have amazing stuff because they always had everything documented. And that's Jean-Pierre's obsession, obviously, is about documenting everything. So that was the easy part. The harder part was um, finding footage that was not just, you know, that was a bit more obscure, like stuff that people hadn't maybe seen before. And uh, I realized with Fontainen, for example, there were photos, but no videos practically. I mean, like barely anything. It's it's like such a contrast to Kantion, which has everything on video, which has so many like news tv channels whatever that filmed at that brewery over the decades and with the fontaine there was nothing i mean basically nothing and uh the one person that really helped me that had stuff was carl uh, godot from the come mm-hmm. and uh he he was uh, it was also quite a long time to get that footage because the tapes were not digitized they were like there's a there's a, there's a whole there, there. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a whole like process that we went through to like get those things uh, digitized and and uh, the time it took. So um, th- he he was very instrumental. like he had some stuff because the brewery or the restaurant of the Fontaine they don't really have any videos, really. I mean, they provided uh, the brewery provided me with the video of Armand and Michael tasting together. But that's a shot on a cell phone, you know, uh, you know that like less than ten years ago, so that's easy. But like the stuff from the '90s and during the struggling times, like uh, it was very hard. And then, uh, and then some of the stuff from Raf uh, was also hard to get because um, you know there it, it was like a. I felt like a lot of people that I asked if they had photos from those times were reluctant in like giving it to me, or like or like they were like, "Oh, I have to check with Raf first because." It seemed like it's something that. Maybe Raf didn't really want out there mm-hmm. because he doesn't. He he never posted really photos of of, of his origins. Uh, maybe one time, but um, it's not something you really can Google and find. And so, uh, but eventually, Raf gave me like a whole batch of photos, and uh, I'm very very grateful for that. That he allowed me to use those in the in the movie.
3: Yeah, uh, no, I mean it's obviously so important and. Uh yeah. I think for every documentary, it's a real challenge to source good art. It's,
0: it's yeah, it was. And it's like, especially when you're not in the country, like, I mean, I was do- doing all this stuff mostly, ex- except again, like the Kantian stuff, I got that while I was there because it was so easy.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: But like all this other stuff, I was trying to like talk with people while I'm across the ocean, you know, in a different continents, different <laughs> time zone. Also, like trying to communicate with people, you know, that are maybe not that, you know, I'm not saying like anybody's name, but like, you know, some people maybe don't communicate well over internet, and also English is not their first language. So, like the terms that I would use, like footage or like these technical terms, like maybe they didn't really understand. And also, it's not their priority. Like, you know, Welcome. here's this guy. Welcome to the world. Here's of, this guy de- who just dealing with yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's uh, it's definitely like I I've, I've had my experience now I'm good. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm definitely like <laughs> No, it's uh, it's you know they 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 um, they do things differently and it's understandable, you know. I...
5: So I started with beer, you know, as an enthusiast back in the early 90s.
1: This is Bill Young
5: of Lambek Tarantino speaking in the movie. Um, and I didn't like the cheap beer that everybody was drinking in college. Because what was being presented to me as beer was an industrial product. And it was a product where the goal was to make everything the same and everything consistent. Um, yeah, it, When you think about if you're a large industrial brewery, what's your primary focus? It's to make sure that no matter which facility the beer is made out of, it tastes exactly the same. You want that consumer to know exactly what they're getting and to just receive the same product every time. What I wanted was new and different. I tried Lambic and I, had, I didn't understand it, so I didn't appreciate it. I couldn't see beyond, this beer is sour and doesn't make any sense to me.
4: I learned everything from my father and my grandfather as well. So I'm the fourth generation working with the same recipe and the same equipment.
1: Jean Van Roy of Brasserie.
4: At the beginning, you always follow your father or your ancestors. and Step by step, you change your mind, because a lot of people producing spontaneous fermentation beer are producing very, very good stuff. Everybody is producing a lot of different types of fruit beers, and we have to pay attention. But for my father, when you are in a lambic brewery, if you produce lambic and goose, it's enough. He's old school. But me not, (laughs) and I am the (laughs) world,
1: part three deep scenes.
3: Let's, um, let's talk a little bit about some of the scenes in the movie, if that's okay. Um, Yes. So, um, there's a scene in which uh, Raph Souverance takes a phone call from Jonathan, from Etre Gourmet, which is a, you know, specialty beer shop, Um, and, you know, it's, you could describe it as a key plot point in that something happens and it tells us something about Lambeck and about the characters involved. he he says that you know the the sale of the four thousand bottles that they put on on sale on on the web shop has crashed the website. Mm-hmm. I mean, from a production point of view, I'm my question is like, that's a that's a, is that a staged or produced scene? No, no,
0: no, no, no.
3: So you're you're filming no. him in the car as he goes about his day, and that, that call comes in, and he puts it on speaker for you.
0: Yeah, you're well, not, it was on speaker because I, I think, like, I'm not sure how it is in Belgium, but you can't like, he was driving. be on the phone, yeah. I think. Yeah, when you're driving. So that's why it's on speaker. But also, yeah, we were filming. No, that was actually, that does, was, I think, the second like a second Hertha Hertha moment movies. where
3: you're like, OK, Jonathan, you need a call now. We'll get this on camera. <laughs> and, you know, this is a natural thing that actually happened. But we're allowed to do this ethically. No. But, you know, it's not it's not one of those moments.
0: It's called movie magic. It just happened. <laughs> no, for sure. I'm not, I'm not making it up. It, it, it happened. Uh, he, he had a mic on because we were filming with him. He was, it was the second day we were filming with him in the summer of 2019. And um, we just went to like this uh, wood shop with him because he bought, he had to buy these new racks to place barrels on. So he had, we went to this wood shop where he was cutting, like having wood cut these planks of wood cut like specific to measure for his warehouse <laughs> and so it was like a quite a whole afternoon experience and we were just filming it and obviously none of that footage made it in because it's not that important to the story and then yeah that phone call just came in because and and it kept coming in like he kept like afterwards it's not in the movie but like he kept like checking in like how it's going and they they were communicating a few times mm-hmm. um, so yeah and then and then obviously like afterwards, like I, uh, I had a follow-up chat with, uh, with Jonathan about it because, uh, obviously I was not there in that moment with Jonathan. Um, but I asked him, so how was it from your perspective?
3: You know? Yeah. You want to get the context of the person <laughs> on the other side of the call for the, for the viewer.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. So that's, uh, no, that was definitely, um, the way it happened.
3: Th- yeah. There's a scene in Ebenezer's with Chris Lively. Um, and you know it's really great to have such a you know outgoing personality, and from an American perspective as well. Talk about Lambic but um, it feels like there's an emotional reflection in that scene from Raff because of the fact that there's mm-hmm. some of the early bottles there, and and I'm again I'm wondering like how much you set that up or knew that might happen as opposed to you were just filming and and not got lucky, but you know we're glad that it it evolved that way.
0: No, it was another one of those things that, um, we were at that festival and, uh, basically Chris, uh, Chris Lively, the owner of Ebenezer's pub at the end of the night was like, you guys want to come down to the cellar and, and, you know, see the cellar. And, uh, so we went down there and he, he was like, let's invite, let's get Roth down here as well. You know, we'll open a few beers and, and chat and you guys can film whatever. And that's just the way it happened. And it was late at night, obviously, like everybody had a few drinks. So like, maybe that's why the emotions came out easier. <laughs> and,
3: and, and in that moment um, in your mind, are you like, yes.
0: Yeah, no, it was great. I mean, for sure. Because like you hope for these things to happen and, and you just have to put yourself in these situations and, 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 be persistent uh but no like it's not like something that like i was planning to happen because yeah a lot of these things like you know you you put yourself in a frame you're like okay let's let's do something here and see what happens and that's oftentimes and then you can also like you know guide it with like questions that you ask and that's how you can shape it but like you know, if if they get emotional or if they like want to do something on them on their own, like that's that that comes from them. So
3: there's a, another scene at Dri in which it's, I think it's just after they kind of announce publicly that you know they're they're kind of more detailed plans for expansion, and there is some criticism, mostly I think from you know deep within the lambic world of their plans and maybe a misunderstanding about what they want to do or and i think there's like a scrolling scene with werner who's like kind of digesting some of that criticism and again mm-hmm. i'm just wondering again from from a from an editing point of view maybe yourself and and i think it was natalie and Kona who, who helped with the edit that are you obviously like going back for the scrolling and and sort of the comments section cutting sections out yeah and dropping it in to dramatize that moment. Like, you know, is Werner screwing those comments or I'm not suggesting that there's a deception in, in, the, in the making of the film. Just, yeah, I'm just, yeah. I'm talking about, you know, raising the stake, the emotional stakes of, of that moment in the film.
0: Yeah, so obviously we were not there for like, you know, certain aspects. We were not there like, uh, right, like this entire time that they were dealing with like the feedback from that. Uh, but, and then obviously like filming the inserts of like people's comments, that's something you do later on. You don't need to do that. Well, you're filming with your subject, that's a waste of time. And you know, um, but we were talking that afternoon about, about that, uh, about that experience. Well, I mean, their reaction mainly. And so uh, yeah he was going over he he was going over some not the comments but uh, he was going over some stuff on the computer and and we basically used that as like you know getting the point across i wouldn't say dramatizing it's just like you have to get the point across visually yeah this is the visual what they're going the through because yeah, of yeah, the of yeah. the point we're
3: trying to make i mean you, yeah i mean so. on that on that you know, the, the tension in that storyline, um, you know, Werner does talk about, you know, pricing and directly about criticism and very much about legacy. Um, mm-hmm. how did you help him feel comfortable or, you know, cause you know, there's a vulnerability to that, that has to come there with, yeah. with being honest and open with, with a filmmaker. Um, was that just, long sessions of filming and talking that that he could see what you were trying to do or you know how did you get Warner to to open up like that
0: so that was obviously like when we we talked about that that was uh, that was later down the line we had filmed with them quite a bit Uh, we have we were like in a certain like understanding and they knew what we were going for and and, you know, I, I have to say it was not easy for Werner to open up about it uh, because the industry, what I've also like noticed, you know, these past years that I filmed, can be very judgmental and can be very critical and, and, and not in a good way. Like it, it, can, it can close people off and they might be afraid to like be vulnerable when actually vulnerability is good vulnerability like helps us like evolve and emote as human beings. And I feel like a lot of times in, in these like very like competitive and, and, and maybe rigid male industry driven industries, uh, vulnerability is not a good thing. It's a sign of weakness when it's not actually like, if you, if you really look at it from a psychological point and actually, you know, so he, he was a bit reluctant to like, talk about the negative aspects of the feedback at first, but I just explained to him that why it was important to the story and also like to, to show that they care. I mean, you, it shows that they care so much, which is good. And, and people will appreciate that. And, you know, from the few people that have seen the movie uh, so far, like, you know, their storyline is like oftentimes people's favorite. And it has to do with the emotions. It's not because like their story is better than the others, but it's because there's also emotion in there. And it's okay to talk about certain things that were maybe, you know, not so, you know, things that you could learn from.
3: Well, I mean, and if, you, if you take that to the, the Cantillon oh, story, and I think um, Jean-Pierre and Jean are both really open um, even when that means they come in conflict with each other and that's like a real honest you know, father-son relationship in, in many ways and yeah. you know like Jean Van Roy talks about um, in a very honest way about how, about his dreams about opening a small winery after his military service and that was the thing that he really wanted to do but he didn't have a chance to do that because he was pulled in yeah. after an injury to, to an employee at Cantillon it feels like You know he's he's opening up about sort of a major disappointment in his life, which makes his character you know really relatable. Um, There's the tension in the plans for For the for the conservatoire, and you know are we going to put more museum or more barrels? Uh, The the stuff we talked about, you know, the way that the ways of drink, the ways of drinking, and you know Jean's kind of appetite for innovation to to do maybe some different fruits or to to do different blends, but yet maintaining the integrity of of um yeah one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is the final scene because it's um it's like a perfect kicker to the whole story it's like everything has been said and it's this poetic full stop you know and it's basically where jean and his son florian who we haven't really seen that much in the film up until this point who Mm. represents kind of the continued legacy of Lambic and the next generation, they're tasting barrels together and there's a, a kind of a, a very simple communication between them about the beer. You know, this one is a rounder. We'll take, this one's rounder in flavour, a rounder in whatever it is, and we'll take this one.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And they kind of move on to the next barrel and then just, I think Jean says onwards and then you cut to black. And it's like, everything's there with family, with the, the artistry of making Lambic, with the kind of the, the forward looking nature of the producers and it's a very simple scene, but it's just a really perfect one to end on. So like, d- did you, was there a lot of discussion on like, okay, we're going to put that one definitely at the end. We're going to try and keep Florian out of it and, so we can use him in this way. Or how did you conceive of that?
0: It's funny that scene was actually the the opening of the film for the longest time. So it was a much more extended scene, longer of uh, tasting and, uh, you know, blending, so to say. But um, we felt that as we were progressing and as we were getting closer to the finish line, it, it was too, like, it, 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 it revealed pretty much everything. And it, like, didn't really leave anything anymore in terms of, like, um, the continuation. And that was important that we get at the end of the day that the cycle, especially in this family, continues. It's like this ongoing cycle, and the next one, and the next one, you know. And so, if we would have put it in the beginning, it would have taken away from that, and it would have it would have went over people's heads too. In terms of like, it wouldn't they wouldn't have really appreciated like who who are these guys? Like, what? Why? Why is it important? Why is the sun there? And now it makes sense at the end. So it was. Uh, but I think it's
3: also good because it's just it's not forced. You know, it's quite subtle, and I like that. Yeah. I like that it's like in its subtlety it has much more power in, in sort of saying this yeah. thing is just going to go on and you know yeah the the, the 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 families are just passing this down and this is the way it is it's like there's no glamour in it it's just guys walking around tasting <laughs> barrels it's and working <laughs> their asses off and you know on, on yeah. onwards you know um
0: yeah and no I, I i like subtlety too like and i like the the beauty and subtlety so i'm happy you picked up on that
3: Armand de Baldur's presence on screen and his words in the film seem more poignant now given you know his recent passing away there's a dedication in the film to Armand as well he's such a great character to observe on screen you know he's just he's just a fantastic character what was it like trying to capture the essence of someone like that
0: it was quite easy, actually, because as you know, having met him, uh, he's just like, he just like, you know, he is who he is and he just opens up and he talks and, you know, it's like a river, it just flows. And uh, so in that sense, it was easy. It didn't demand any like, you know, he. I was just in telling him what my intentions are with the movie and he was like, okay, yeah. And... And we went on this journey with him, and we didn't film many days with him. It was right before he he. Well, it was right at the time he was getting diagnosed with the cancer, and uh, basically, I think it was yeah. We probably filmed we probably filmed the last footage of him in like good health in terms of like before the whole treatment happened, and and his uh, you know uh, he deteriorated uh, physically and and health wise, so. It's uh you know, he's just a magical guy, and it's very sad that he's not amongst us anymore, but i'm I'm really happy that I got to spend a few days with him at least and and I felt and I feel like you know his death really impacted me personally as well, because <clears throat> although I've only known him <clears throat> later in his life, um, spending three years <clears throat> editing footage together, you know. Like and seeing him over and over on your computer screen, hearing him talk all the time, you see, you start like in your in your dreams you <laughs> hear his voice, you know, like all the other people. So like you feel like a sense of like closeness to him, and you you feel like you knew the guy more than you actually did, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, yeah it was quite sad. Well, I, I think he's someone he that, that
3: does, you know, speak with such conviction and has a great use of language and, and believes what he's doing. Um, and I also think, you know, if the movie had been made without him featuring in it, or it would have been a poorer movie that, that because Lambic is, you know, was his life. And so I think it yeah. was great that he was in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. a couple of final questions before we, we finish.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, no worries. No worries. What are your hopes for the movie? So, my hopes are that, you know, and on a very basic term, to that as many people get to see it as possible and also beyond the beer world. Um, I hope that I tackled something and that I told the story about something that is relatable to people beyond the beer world and beyond this niche community. Uh, because I think there's a lot of themes in there that are relatable to other people industries to other, to everyday people. And it's themes that we, you know, is, are, are nice to revisit, you know, like they're more like grounded themes. I feel like, you know, the, I, I get it. There's a lot of things going on in the world. There's a lot of hot topics all the time and you could make movies about everything. But what I always like is like, just like the bare bones of like human interactions within their community. And I think those stories can be told many times over because I, I, I think we always learn something about it, about ourselves and and uh, that's kind of what I was hoping for. And, and also that like, maybe people who don't know much about beer, like view beer as an effect from seeing the movie as in a different light, because I do think beer gets, not the rep that it deserves. I think a lot of times it's much more complex and much richer than wine. But wine is like considered this like thing that's so noble, and beer is like a peasant's drink, which is which is funny because it used to be a, the other way around way back when. And um, yeah, it's it's. I, I just I just hope that it like opens up to people to like get some respect for beer and uh, also like uh, just see a beautiful human story.
4: I love what I do.
1: That's Raph Suvrance of the Blendery
4: Bocca. I just started making beer because I love drinking Lambic and I thought I could, you know, make something different. Most of my production is through beers. It opens new doors for blending and to push boundaries and make the best possible beer I can. My family does not have any background in making the year. I cannot claim to be the 75th generation of uh, blah blah tradition this or that. So. <laughs> yeah. well, that's the wrong answer. <laughs>
3: <laughs> if you were starting out to make the film now,
0: what would you have done differently? Oh, um, yeah, that's a hard one. How do I, how would I make it differently? Maybe what I would do differently is like, if I could, and I know that's probably not possible because you can't do that, but I would like to erase everything I know about Lambic before going into it. Because one of the main struggles I had during the making of the movie is that I knew a lot about it already because because of my research, because of like being fascinated by the beer myself personally. And it hindered me asking certain basic questions that like were so obvious, but because you know things, you overlook them, right? It's like that thing of like, oh, I know about this, so I don't, I, I don't even think about asking it. Mm-hmm. And it took a lot of like, like realizing that and a lot of people like pointing that out to like be like, no, you have to ask these questions because how is anybody gonna understand anything about this if we don't? And even until the last days of filming, the last couple trips of filming, we were asked, I went back and asked these basic questions of like, what is spontaneous fermentation? Please explain it in like basic terms. I need, you know, and, and all those things that you overlook when you when I started out. So I wish I, I could go back and have done that from the beginning. And um, maybe it would have like, been easier in terms of, like, shaping the, shaping the movie.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, Is there something that you learned about Belgium or the Belgians that you didn't know before you started shooting?
0: Um, Maybe the, maybe the main thing that I learned was, like, that they're much more, much warmer and more like, uh, open to people from, from the outside than I thought, especially like growing up in Luxembourg for some reason, and it's probably has to do with like certain like political parties in the Flemish side, but there was always this like thing that, that growing up that I heard that Flemish people are very much like closed off and don't like foreigners. And for me, that was like not at all the case. I actually thought like the Flemish people that I you know, met and interacted with in this, during the process of making this film were much more open, open than the people in Brussels. Like they were much more welcoming. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so it's like this like, uh, this, like um, I don't know, a bad stereotype that I, you know, it's like these things you hear growing up and you're like, oh yeah, it must be true. then you realize it's not at all true. It's just like this weird stereotype or like false rumor or whatever. Yeah.
3: I think, I think there's probably some element of truth in most stereotypes, but it's, it's, I think with the, with the Flemish, it's, you know, there is this sort of thin film rather than a barrier. It's a thin film that you, you need to penetrate because maybe culturally that's the way they operate. And once you penetrate it, it's, you know, they're very warm and, and quite open and, you know, I obviously live in Flanders and have done for a number of years so the 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 film is mostly yeah. gone <laughs> but I, I, I totally <laughs> the, the perception you know very much internationally is that there is a reservedness or a yeah there's a wall up maybe.
0: Yeah. And I didn't think that was the case. Well, I mean, like you said, like, yeah, for sure, you have to gain people's trust and you can't just like walk in there and like, you know, do everything and film everything. But like, um, I, I was quite surprised and, um, that's always nice. You know, I, you know, for me, for me, I learned a lot about Belgium. I learned a lot about a country that I lived to like right next door to for like a long time of my life and never really understood or knew. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, now I, I think it's also a very beautiful country, and to be honest, I prefer Brussels over Paris like any day. Like I'm not a huge Paris guy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and you know that was that's kind of learning about balance. But like it was a big commitment. It was like four years, maybe longer, that it took from from conception to finishing the film. It's still not finished because there's all the promotion you have to do. You're gonna have to talk more about the film. I mean. Mm-hmm. A lot of challenges that you know, men, all of us will will not know about. But what what did you learn about yourself during production?
0: Um, what did I learn about myself? Let's see. I I think that um, what did I learn about myself? Maybe that I maybe what I learned about myself from like um from like a filmmaker's perspective was that I always saw myself as a producer and I was like oh directing's too hard I never want to do that I'd rather like do like the managerial logistical stuff but now I'm kind of like rethinking that and like not saying that I'm not going to produce I do enjoy producing quite a lot too but like I'm, I'm already, like, thinking of, like, my, what the next documentary could be that I'm going to make because I feel like it's another one of these topics that no one else is going to do uh, that I have some sort of connection with and interest in. And so, yeah, it's like, I, I guess I learned that I'm also interested in directing stuff. So uh, I know that's maybe not, like, a very, <laughs> like, deep answer, uh, but, like... Yeah. Yeah, but it yeah, can, it can shape where um, you go
3: in the future and on the the type of projects yeah. and the type of roles that you want to take on. I mean, obviously your next project will be. There's plenty of other niche substyles of Belgian beer that you could that you could invest five years of your life in.
0: <laughs> I think I'm I think I'm good for with Belgian beer for a minute. It's like, uh, yeah, it has to go somewhere else now. But I I it, it definitely like I don't want to say anything yet. But I. I definitely the next topic that I'm toying with in my head is another niche community. It's bigger than Lambic. It's, it has more following. It has more like clout, but, and it's also not in the beverage world, but like, um, it's, uh, it's another niche community, which I guess I'm drawn to.
3: Um, do you love what you do?
0: I do. Yeah. I, um, because you wouldn't go through all this suffering and pain and, and you know, just like really, like hard, unpaid work. You know, a lot of a lot of work, but not a lot of um, payoffs in terms of finance, financial uh, things with documentaries. But uh, you know, you you gotta love it, and I do. I, I, I it's it's the only thing I also know how to do. I I never really like worked anywhere else. Like I you know did odd jobs very early on but like not for very long like not not really anything that I would ever like talk about or bring up because film was always what I wanted to do or um, it's it's my passion so yeah I do
3: Jerry Jerry Frank thank you so much for talking to me and uh, good luck with the film
0: thank you thank you so much appreciate it
1: That's it for today, everyone. I want to say a massive thanks to you for listening. You know, at, at Belgian Smack, we work really hard to bring you interesting podcasts, meaningful reported stories, and high quality photojournalism. You know, we do it because we love what we do, but we're also inspired by the wonderful comments and reviews and the feedback that we get from you. So I just want to say genuinely thank you for listening and reading. Now every month at Belgian Smack, we send out a newsletter email with all the most interesting news stories and events from around the world of Belgian beer. If you don't already subscribe, I'd encourage you to do so. We try to make it as useful, as interesting and as intriguing as possible. It's completely for free and we never spam. So once a month, chock-a-block with everything that you need to know about Belgian beer for that month. Finally, If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review of the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It'll take only a few minutes and it goes such a long way to helping others discover the podcast. For those of you that have already left a review, thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Just growing our community helps us with credibility in a kind of a difficult media landscape to take on more projects and to deliver more of the stories and podcasts that you want. So thanks my name is Brendan Kearney this has been the Belgian Smack podcast until next time love what you do